As we have said really specifically in the last couple of weeks together, this is the time uh, in our gathering on Sunday morning when we pay particular attention to the Word of God by opening it up, reading it together, and then teaching from it. And we've talked about why we do this for the last couple of weeks. I've made some very declarative and plain statements about it where I, we said, I'll kind of remind you for those of you that are our guests with us this morning, uh, I've said we take the time that we take on Sunday mornings to do this, to read God's word, to teach from God's word, because we believe emphatically uh, that God's word working through God's spirit is God's chief or primary instrument and establishing and cultivating God's people. That's why we do what we do. And last week I I built upon that and I said, we not only believe that to be the truth about God's word, but we said last week that God's word is ultimately all about God. So God's word about God is God's chief instrument working through God's spirit for the establishment and the cultivation of God's people. So when we gather together as God's people, we pay particular and primary attention to God's word. What is God's word saying about us? What is God's word ultimately saying about himself? What does that mean? This is why we do what we do. It's why we spend the time that we spend together in God's word. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter one. You don't have to turn very far. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles on tray tables uh, behind each section of chairs. Feel free to jump up and grab one. It doesn't distract me at all. Um, As we go through the text this morning, it will also be on the screen if you prefer to look up there. Um, But you can grab a Bible, use it. If you don't actually have a Bible or own a Bible, grab one of those Bibles and keep it. Let that be our our gift to you this morning. But if you've got your Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter one. We are spending this year 52 weeks of walking through the entire Bible, uh, looking at what we're calling God's drama of redemption. So you don't have to be a mathematician to realize that if there are 66 books in the Bible and 52 weeks in a year, we're gonna go through the Bible in 52 weeks, we're not gonna be able to cover every single word in the Bible. We, we realize that and we recognize that, which is why we're structuring our, our journey through the Bible around the one central story that the Bible tells. Though there's 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors from three different countries and or in many different countries in three different languages, there is one singular story that is woven through the entire Bible. And it is a story about God. And it is God's story of redemption. And so we're going to look at that this year as we walk through the Bible. And we're actually just gonna use the standard five-act literary structure that all of you learned in literature class in school. Five general acts that every single story can be broken up into. And right now, we're in the middle of the first act. The first act of the story. And anytime you read a story and you look at the first act or a play and you look at the first act, what happens there is the introduction of characters. You get to meet the people that the story is going to be revolving around. You get to meet the main characters. You get to hear about the setting that the story is going to find itself in. And that's what we're doing right now as we look at the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And so I know some of you are fearing that we're not going to make it through the entire Bible. Um, I didn't encourage you with that last week. We did 10 words. This week, we're going to pick up those 10 words, and we're going to make it through one chapter. But I promise you, we will make it through the entire story. And reading these words and taking the time that we're taking on these words, especially these first words of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and as you'll see in a few weeks, chapter 3, taking the time that we're taking on these words is no waste of time. I want you to understand this. Reading these words, these words that we're going to read this morning is no waste of time. 
There have been no more important words that have shaped and changed the course of human civilization than these words, in Genesis chapter one in particular. And so it's no waste of time to spend the time that we're spending on these words. And so as you open it up, and hopefully you found Genesis now, just a few pages into your Bible, let me remind you of something that we said already, that Genesis itself, that word, it means origins. It means source. This book, God's intent with this book, and in particular, this first chapter that we're gonna look at, is God's explanation of the origin of everything. And not the scientific explanation, but the purposeful explanation. God's story of everything. God's story of everything. What's gone wrong? And what hope we have for something better? And if you remember, for those of you that were around, and I'll, I'll say this now for those of you who weren't with us when we started this a couple of weeks ago, uh, the big question that surrounds this entire look at this story as we're going through it, the big question that hangs over top of this entire effort to understand God's story of redemption is this. The question is not whether or not our lives will be shaped by some grand story, but what story will actually shape our lives? Who gets to narrate your life? Who gets to narrate your world? What story will shape the way you understand your life? What story will you find your life a part of? The question isn't whether or not you'll be shaped by one, but which one is going to shape you? Genesis begins to tell God's story. And there are other stories and some of you may be familiar with a man named Carl Sagan. I'll just give you an, an insight. I'm not gonna knock him. I don't disrespect him, very intelligent man. Some of you may remember his name. You may be familiar with him. He was an American astronomer who was staunchly opposed to Christianity and the Christian view of the world. The Christian, even the Christian understanding of the scriptures staunchly opposed to Christianity. And years ago, he did an interview with Ted Koppel on Dateline. Now, he did this interview days before he would die. He did not know, Carl Sagan did not know that he was going to die in a matter of days after giving this interview, but he did. And at the end of the interview, Ted Koppel asked him one question. This is what he said. He said, Mr. Sagan, do you have any words of wisdom, anything that you would like to share with the people of Earth? And this is what he said, just giving you a picture. He said, we live on a hunk of rock and metal that circles a humdrum star that's one of 400 billion other stars that make up the Milky Way galaxy, which is one of billions of other galaxies which make up the universe, which may be one of a very large number, perhaps infinite number of other universes. The cosmos is all there is, or was, or ever will be. That is a perspective, this is what he says. Let's listen to his closing words. That is a perspective, not on science, that is a perspective on human life and our culture that is well worth pondering. Those were his final words to people. So let's just take a second and ponder those words. We came from nowhere. We're going nowhere. There's no purpose in anything that we see around us. The cosmos is all there ever was, ever is, and ever will be. Therefore, life as we understand it and know it is ultimately purposeless, meaningless. 
Is that the story that gets to narrate your life? Is that the story that gets to determine your understanding of who you are? Why you're here, what's gone wrong, and what hope there is for the future? The issue isn't whether or not you're going to be shaped by a story. It's what story is going to shape you. Who gets to narrate your world? And who gets to narrate your life? This is what God is beginning to do in his story, in particular in Genesis chapter one. Now let's just look at it. Genesis chapter one. Remember this from last week. Genesis chapter one has its own agenda. Genesis chapter one does not exist to begin to answer the questions that we bring to it. We spent time talking about this last week. I won't get into it. We bring our own questions to Genesis chapter one, but God has his own agenda for it. God is telling his own story. Genesis chapter one is God beginning to narrate his story and he's beginning to answer the most fundamental of questions. Most of the time, not the questions that we bring to it. He's answering the questions of who he is. Who is God? Who are we? Why are we here? Genesis chapter one is not here for our scientific curiosity. It's here for our conversion. That's God's purpose in Genesis chapter one. It's here, as we said last week, to cultivate adoration. It's here to cultivate worship. And so let's just begin to read it together and, and let's, just, let's just do what Dr. Sagan said to do with his own story. Let's just ponder God's story. We're just gonna read it together and we're just gonna ponder God's story. What is God saying about himself and what is God saying about us and what is God saying about why we're here? What is the beginning of his story? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 10 words, three propositions. Spent a whole week on them last week. 10 words, three propositions, and they present an entirely new vision of God. An entirely new vision of divinity. Remember, we have to read Genesis with the eyes and with the ears of those who first heard it. Remember Genesis chapter one, the first people who actually heard these words were the newly freed community of slaves on the other side of the Red Sea. They, they had heard stories of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it had just been over 400 years in extreme oppression and persecution and slavery in Egypt. And then this God, through his man Moses, leads them out of Egypt, defeating the mighty armies of Pharaoh, watching the Red Sea, the great sea in front of them part, while they could walk across on dry land, only to see it enfold back over again upon Pharaoh's armies, finding themselves now free 400 plus years of persecution and slavery, finding themselves free on their way to a land that they had heard about this God promising, they have to ask the question, what God is this that can defeat the armies of a Pharaoh? What is this God like? Who is this God? Why us? These are the questions that God is answering. He's talking about himself. Remember, God's word is ultimately about God. In Genesis chapter one, verse one, 10 words, three propositions, we get an entirely new picture of divinity. And these words demystified the universe for God's people. And now for them, the universe wasn't something to be feared, wasn't something to be misunderstood, wasn't something to be unknown and afraid of. Now it was the context for knowing God. The one true, eternal, only necessary, all sufficient, not created all-powerful God of the universe. That's what we saw last week, Genesis chapter one, verse one. But now, let's just look a bit more closely 
at the beginning of this story. Let's just ponder God's version of this story. Genesis 1, chapter 2. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, most of us, when we just stop, if you just think about creation, if you just think about God creating all things, most of us tend to think about creation being instantly beautiful and instantly wonderful. That's not what Genesis 1, chapter 2 says. And here's the thing. Moses doesn't explain why it's like this. He doesn't explain why God does it like this. We can come up with all kinds of creative answers. We can talk about the great artist gathering together for himself the raw materials for what he's creating. We can come up with all kinds of answers, but Moses doesn't tell us. He just tells us what God does about it. He doesn't tell us why God does it this way. He just tells us what God does about it. And look at what he says. He said his spirit was hovering. And the spirit of God was about to move against this darkness and chaos. There was never a time, never a period when God was not active, when God wasn't amongst his creation, when God was not working and moving. His spirit was hovering. This hovering, I I love this. I learned this for the first time this week and I I wrestle with whether or not to talk about it, but it encouraged me so much. I just wanna share it with you. This, This word hovering, it's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11. And I'll bring it up right here. This is, this is the same word. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them. Now, bearing them up on its pinions. That bearing them up is the same word, hovering. Bearing them up on its pinions. The Lord alone guided them. Just as the eagle tips its young out and catches them and hovers to and fro, supporting, guiding, teaching, working. It's parental care, parental covering, parental working, that love and affection. Just as you see that kind of care and affection amongst the eagle teaching its young to fly, God said in the beginning, this is what his work was. This is what his activity amongst his creation was like. His spirit was already caring, it was already involved. This is what was going on. We don't know why he did it this way, but we know what he did about it, that he was hovering, caring for it, watching over it, working in it. And now from verses three through verses 31, actually, yeah, through verses 31, and God is going to build his kingdom. We see that spirit moving against this formlessness and void, and God saying, let there be, and hearing that it was so perfectly and effortlessly the will of God is achieved. For six days, God orders this formlessness and void and he fills it. And his six days, as we see in these lyrics of Genesis chapter one, are neatly divided into two units of three days. And days one through three, as we read it, just keep in your mind, days one through three deal with the formlessness. Days four, five, and six deal with the void. For six days, God forms. For six days, God fills. Forming and filling. Working in his creation. God told this story that it might create in his people worship. That it might create in his people adoration. This is song. This isn't science. So as we read God's creative account, let's read it with an eye towards cultivating worship and adoration. 
Verse three, day one. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Have you ever stopped to ponder? Just, just ponder God's story. Have you ever stopped to ponder that God is the source of light? Without which, without light, you couldn't even simply see the rest of God's handiwork. Without light, you could simply do nothing that you do. God separated the light from the darkness, the night and the day. Have you ever thanked God for not changing that rhythm? Have you ever looked at the consistency of day and night and thanked God for his faithfulness? Day one, God separated the light from the darkness. Day two, look at verse six. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and he separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Have you ever just woken up and taken a, a deep breath or walked outside on a morning like this and, and just stood still and silent and, and taken a deep breath and marveled at God for creating, for creating just as precise a world that creates the exact amount of oxygen necessary for us to breathe and sustain life? The, the perfect environment for just the right amount of moisture to be gathered up into the skies for rain and for snow. An atmosphere uh, a firmament, some of your Bibles will say, that is just so that as asteroids fly through, it burns up, not damaging his people. An ozone layer in that firmament that serves for the protection of God's people. Have you ever wondered what life would be like without the sky? Have you ever just thought about it? Have you ever wondered and marveled that it's a sheer act of God's grace that the oceans haven't decided to climb up into the heavens. That the waters below have not decided to reunite with the waters above. Have you ever just looked and seen God's grace and not just creating things this way, but in keeping them this way? His separation of the waters from above and below and the creation of sky, that handiwork was for the sake of his creation and he continues it to this day. Day three, verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Have you ever just marveled? God's work in creating the oceans and dividing the waters into lakes and ponds and streams and oceans and tributaries and creeks and fjords and puddles from boundaries and now exposed land on which we live and move. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is the, which, and in which is their seed according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. 
when there was evening and there was morning the third day. Can you begin to even fathom the endless varieties of vegetation on the earth? I, I, I went to Google, I didn't spend much time on it, I didn't get exact numbers, and I couldn't get an exact answer to this question, but I would dare say, I'll stick it out there, someone can, can correct me next week if you want to, but I dare say there isn't a time in the year where somewhere, something beautiful is in blooming. Endless varieties of plants and vegetation and flowers Flowers that transform into fruits, others that transform into vegetables, others that sprout seeds and, and, and trees and, and bushes. And he spoke. He imagined and he spoke. And there they are. And unless we mess with them, Unless we alter their natural production, unless we cross-pollinate them in a way that doesn't naturally occur, apple seeds produce apples. God put within this vegetation the capacity to reproduce according to its own kind. He didn't just create an apple tree, he created one that would reproduce with the consistency of knowing that when it reproduced, it would reproduce apples. Here are his people on the other side of the sea wondering what kind of God can do what we just saw. What God ha has carried us out of what we've just experienced. Who is he and who are we? And this is what God says. This is how he begins to introduce himself. This is who I am and this is what I've done. Day four, verse 14. God has formed his creation, now he's gonna start filling it. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. He said it, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. God set them in the expanse. Have you ever just thought about that? Have you ever just looked out at a night sky and gotten away from the city, been at a planetarium, seen the stars, and ever thought he put them there? They're where he put them. He set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Have you ever given a second of thought to what would happen if the earth stopped rotating around the sun? Did you ever give a second that thought, if the moon ceased to influence the ocean's tides, what would happen to those creatures who depend upon those moving waters for the continual supply of oxygenation? Have you ever looked at the sun on a bright morning like today and seen it, not for something that you need to shade yourself from, but as an evidence of God's grace, seasons and days and years, never breaking stride, every single morning a new day, a fresh day. Day five, verse 20. God said that the waters swarm with the swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves 
with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. You see kind of where I'm going with each of these days, don't you? I mean, have you ever just stepped back and thought about the birds rhythmically flying south for the winter? Have you ever thought about the endless varieties of fish and animals in the sea, some that swim upstream to spawn, and when they spawn, they reproduce after their own kind? Salmon don't produce hippopotamuses. This is what he saw, this is what he said, and this is what became. Day six, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Tell me that you've watched the Discovery Channel, and at some point in your life been in awe at what you saw. I mean, forget the Discovery Channel. When was the last time you went to a zoo? And when was the last time you just took the train to D.C. and went to the National Zoo and just looked face to face with the animals that are in that zoo that God spoke and came into existence? Have you ever stopped to just think about the sheer variety of animals, their sounds, their traits, their strengths, their harmonies? Have you ever been moved at the raw power of a lion stalking across the ground? Have you ever just been moved, seen it for what it is? He created it. He he created it. He knew it, he thought it, he spoke it, he created it. The stalking lion, the giant hippo, the long-necked giraffe, he created all of them. And he said they were good. They were good. In verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And in male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, food. and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. Chapter two, verse one. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. 
And if you can hear that in any way, the way that God's people heard that the first time that Moses read that to them on the other side of that Red Sea, what you heard over and over and over and over and over again is the one true, only sufficient, all-powerful, eternal God. The sun is not the God. I created it. The oceans are not God. I created it. The heavens are not God. I created it. That animal is not God. I created it. Pharaoh is not God. You are not God. I created you, and I finished. I'm done. I am the one true, all-powerful, immeasurably good God. Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, he said that the smile of God is all over Genesis 1. I love that sentence. The smile of God is all over Genesis 1. And there was nothing unpleasant, nothing cruel. It was good, very good. This word that God uses to describe his creation, this word good, it's the same word that's used in Isaiah chapter 52, verse seven for happiness. The smile of God, the happiness of God is all over Genesis 1. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The smile of God is all over Genesis 1. God is not trying to communicate some sentimental view of nature and creation. He's communicating that the goodness of God is the deepest aspect of everything that he has created. All of creation declares that God is immeasurably good. His goodness, his goodness is sweeter than the sweetest taste of honey that you've ever tasted. His strength is stronger and more formidable than any mountain range that you've ever stood at the base of. Creation is declaring the invisible attributes and the divine nature, Paul said, of this one true, eternal, all-powerful God. His smile is all over it. His sweetness is sweeter than anything you've tasted. His strength is stronger than anything that you've ever stood in awe of. And his goodness His immeasurable goodness is more faithful and consistent than the sun that he ordered to wake us up every day and the moon that he put in place to put us to bed every night. His power and his goodness are sweeter and stronger and immeasurably better than anything that you've ever tasted or experienced on this earth. And the point of the way that God told this story and the point of what God was saying, the point is his glorious, creative, all-powerful grandeur. The point of Genesis 1 is the glory of God and the point of pondering it and reading it and hearing it is ultimately worship. Now looking at Genesis 1 for who God is, not for the questions that we wanted to answer, but looking at it for who God is and, and what God is doing. It doesn't minimize or or end stupid fights with science about creation and history. Science does not disprove praise. 
nor does the Bible's beginning claim to be an explanation, rather an exaltation. One of my favorite sentences about Genesis chapter one. Marva Dawn, science does not disprove praise, nor does the Bible's beginning claim to be an explanation. Rather, it's an exaltation. God's power and goodness are on display from the beginning. Frankly, because you and I are so prone to disbelieve it. We talked about this last week. We entertain such low thoughts about God, in particular his power and his goodness. But that's the refrain of Genesis 1, all-powerful, immeasurably good. And that news was as foreign to the ears of the Israelites when Moses wrote it down. It's as foreign to them as it really honestly is to us. The world that they lived in, the world around them saw nature as divine. And the powers of nature were simply the, the forces of the gods, capricious gods at that. So religion was an effort to placate those gods so they wouldn't unleash their forces upon you. In Genesis chapter one demystifies and obliterates that idea. And we need Genesis chapter one really honestly as bad as the Israelites needed it. Because how much of our life is spent trying to placate a God that we really don't think is all powerful or immeasurably good? I mean, honestly. I mean, how much of our life is spent trying to placate and walk on eggshells and dance around and say the certain things and do the certain things that would keep the forces of this God who we're not sure is all powerful and not sure is immeasurably good at bay and off of us? We need God's self-revelation in Genesis chapter one, honestly, as bad as the Israelites did. He is the one true, eternal, only sufficient, all-powerful, immeasurably good God. And Genesis chapter one introduces us to him, but it also says some things about you and I. We shouldn't skip past this. We're gonna talk more next week, but Genesis chapter one says some things about you and I that some things I think we frankly fail to remember on a daily basis. Genesis chapter one introduces us to God and his kingdom, but they also introduce us to humanity. In Moses' day, humans were considered to be pawns of the gods. You know, some thought that people sprung out of the blood of the god of chaos who had died in the original battle between good and evil, and we were just simply pawns of the, 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 the gods of the earth. Like I said a minute ago, kind of capricious gods at that. And that may sound far-fetched to most of us, but it's really not more far-fetched or unlikely from the story that would say that we're simply byproducts of time and chance, that we're simply a happy accident. It's not, doesn't require, let's say this way, more faith in the story that Dr. Sagan narrates as the story of our life. Both can't be true though. Both can't be true. God's account in Genesis one and Dr. Sagan's account can't both be right. Which one is it? What did God say about us? Genesis 1, 26. Here's what we see this eternal, all-powerful God say about you and I for the first time. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Do you hear the title that God gave humanity before Genesis chapter three? We haven't gotten to the entrance of sin yet. 
So I'm gonna stick to Genesis one. Do you hear the title that God gave humanity before Genesis chapter three? He said we were created in the image of God. Just ask you, I won't take a poll with hands, but when you think about people in general, if I were to ask you to say the first word that pops into your head when I say humanity, my guess is one of the first words that would pop out of most of your, most of your mouths is sinners. Honestly. I mean, when we talk about people, when we talk about humanity, the first thing that comes to our lips generally isn't created in the image of God. But the first thing that we actually see come from the mouth of God when it comes to humanity, as far as we can tell, is this. Not let's make some sinners. Let's, let's make them in our image. Let's make them in our, our, our likeness. And how often, just ask yourself, how often does that description come into your mind when you think about your neighbors, your coworkers, your kids, your in-laws, celebrities you read about on the internet. People are sinners. I believe that. We will get there in Genesis chapter three. Totally depraved in every single way. You can see it in your own life. I don't need to point it out in anybody else's life. But if we're going to understand the big deal about sin and the big deal about God's redemptive work, we're gonna need to start looking at people the way that God started looking at people. And that's created in the image and likeness of God. And until we start thinking about people where God starts with people, we're not gonna get the big deal about sin. We're not gonna get the big deal about redemption. We're not gonna get the big deal about restoration. And so what did God mean when he said, the image of God, we're gonna create you in our image and likeness? And that was a common expression. It wasn't new language for the Israelites. People in the Egyptian civilization and other ancient civilizations would use the expression of people being in the image of God, but it was always reserved for a very special person in their mind. It was always reserved for the king or for the pharaoh. They said that this person may have been created in the image of the gods or in the image of God or be the son of gods or be in the likeness of gods. And here Moses comes with God's revelation, his beginning story, his definition of who he is and how things came to being and who they are. And this is what God says, you are the image of God. I know you've been in places where they said, that guy is. It's reserved for him. He might be one of the sons of the gods. He might be in the likeness of one of the gods. God says, no, this is who I am, and here's the thing about you. I created you in my image and likeness. You've got to hear how astounding that would have sounded to the Israelites when they heard this. He just said that all humans are created in the likeness of God. That's an unbelievably radical statement. Male and female, he said, created in the image of God. All of the glory and the splendor that they had reserved for pharaohs and for kings. All of that that went with this idea of what it meant to be in the image and likeness of one of the gods. God says, this is how I created you. This is your splendor and your dignity. Every man and every woman. You were created in the image and likeness of God. That means something very, very important. Let me try to say it this way. 
I think we can all agree that the president of the United States is a very important man. Can we all agree with that? No, no political statements in this. He's a very important man. He makes decisions on a regular basis that affect the course of history. He can make some very big decisions that have radical impacts on not only the life as we know it now, but life that will be played out. That's the power that he has. And so we should pray for him. Let me just say that. We should pray for him. He makes very big, very important decisions. And part of my prayer is that one day his wife would not walk into the room and him just get mad at her. Go off the handle and decide, you know what, I'm just gonna start pushing buttons. Get on the bat phone and make a call. You wanna see how strong I am? Push that button. Watch what happens. My hope and my prayer because of his power is that he doesn't make decisions like this that will absolutely alter the course of human life now and human life to come. And I say that because of this. Most of us look at ourselves and we say in light of that, in light of that role and in light of that power, in light of that influence, who am I? I'm nothing in comparison to that. Who, who cares if I give up on my career? Who cares if I just let it implode? Who cares if I just give up on my family? My choices don't move history. My choices aren't like his choices. Here's what Genesis chapter one just said. Genesis chapter one just said that you are just as valuable and honorable as the President of the United States of America. Every single man and woman created in the image of God. Your choices and what you do with your life, the way that you listen to, listen to God's words and respond or don't, are just as important as every choice that any king in all of history has ever made. If you believe the Bible, then you need to believe this to be true about yourself. You were created in the image and likeness of God. Moses is telling a ragtag group of former slaves that they are as valuable as kings and queens, that their lives matter, that they're made in the likeness and image of God himself. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that about those same neighbors? Do you believe that about your kids? Do you believe it about the person next to you? Just how important to God's plan do you really think you are? Being created in the image and likeness of God is a great title, and it carries a fantastic responsibility, and we'll talk more about that next week, but it's a great title because as far as God is concerned, we are the crown of his creative act, and this is how God chooses to start his story. He declares who he is and who we are. What a privilege. What a privilege to just be alive. What a privilege to just know where this world came from, how it's ordered. What a privilege to know that an all-powerful, immeasurably good God has put this in place for us to enjoy. And he's upholding every single aspect of it by his word. His word of power that not only spoke it into existence but sustains it to this very day. God gives us everything, the Bible says, to richly enjoy. Do we give him our thanks and do we enjoy it? Genesis chapter one was given to God's people, given to you and I, that it might cultivate worship. Let me say this, this morning, if, if you're not a Christian, 
if the story of the Bible has been foreign to you, if, if all of this is relatively new to you, and let me just say this. God still calls into existence that which doesn't exist. Your skepticism and your unbelief, it really is no barrier to God. The same God that spoke into a formlessness and emptiness and said, let there be light, is the same God that still says, let there be light into darkness and confusion in the human heart. And at that same word, as light sprang into being where there was no light, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus, can shine bright in your heart. Your unbelief, your skepticism, your questions, your doubt, your human experience, it is no barrier to this God. So I'll say this. Let me try to think of the right way to say it. I dare you to ask him to make you new. I dare you to ask him to recreate you. I I dare you to read your Bible, let it begin to read you, to do life with his people, to seek this God with an open heart and let him shine his light of his glory, of the knowledge of his son into your heart. It's just that simple. He's still forming. He's still filling. He still takes the darkness and emptiness of our hearts and souls and shines the light of his son in them. I dare you to let him narrate your life. It's that simple. I dare you to let him narrate your life. He is either right or he is wrong. He is either right or you really are just the random product of time and chance. No meaning, no purpose. And I will just encourage you in this. It takes more faith to actually resign yourself to that than to be known, to be loved, to be shaped by the only one true, eternal, self-sufficient, all-powerful, immeasurably good God of this story. I dare you to let him narrate your world. If you are a Christian, do you see yourself as created in the image of God? I ask because until you do, until you do, you will never be committed to the mission that God has given his people. You will never be as committed to the mission that God has given his people as you should be because your mind will simply think, what difference can you make anyway? What difference can your choices make anyway? Do you see yourself as created in the image of God? This is who he is and this is who we are and this is how he has begun his story. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we thank you for Genesis chapter one. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You didn't give us a list of attributes of likes and dislikes. You simply showed us who you are by showing us what you've done. 
Lord, I just ask that by your spirit, you would do what only you can do and you would shine in our hearts, every single one of us, the immeasurable goodness of your, of your absolute power, that we would know you for who you are. Lord, help us as we go through this story, as we go through this word, to not presume ourselves above it, but to surrender ourselves to it, that we could see our life, our story, as narrated by yours, that we would come to know you for who you are, trust you for who you are, and be transformed by your grace into the image and likeness of your son for your glory in whose name we pray, amen.